That's good. I like applause. Um, uh, good morning again. Uh, I'm excited about the retreat that's happening next weekend. And if you're wondering, like, things for, like, how are you going to get there and, like, what's going to happen when you get there and all that, we'll be sending out an email later on this week with more details. We'll have room assignments and all that good stuff. Remember, head west not north. You know, we've had this Pine Cove Retreat Center uh, that we go to, and so, yeah, we used to go north for retreats all the time. Anyhow, we are on part four of a series that we're doing called A Church That Unites Diverse People. And we're taking seriously this vision that Jesus gave to the early church. Go to Jerusalem, go to Judea and Samaria, go to the ends of the earth, And it was this amazing vision that Jesus imparted to about 120 people, not a whole lot, a huge vision to go to grow the church, to spread the good news, and to unite people of all kinds of different backgrounds. It was an unheard of vision, but he gave them a gift before they would go, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in these early chapters of Acts, you may be wondering, well, how do these things fit with this greater vision about diversity? We've been talking about healings, about tongues, and about, you know, flames of fire. So how do these things work? And what we're seeing in the early chapters of Acts, why they're so important for us, is because they lay the theological foundation for all that's going to come. You get the foundation right and correct, and you begin building on it, you're set. You're okay. If the foundation is a little more shaky and it's not that secure, there's going to be problems later on. And God has a very specific kind of way that he wanted his early church to grow. He gave them specific instructions and a way to go about it. And so that's why we're paying attention to these things. Now, in the beginning of... um, Acts, um, we are talking about these things, but Jesus also said earlier in the Gospels this analogy about his teaching and his words. He said, anyone who builds on my words, they're like building a house on solid rock. It's, it's going to be good. The weather's going to come, there's going to be wind, and there's going to be rain, and it, it's going to be okay. On the other hand, if you ignore my words... It's like you're going to be building your house and your life, in a sense, on sand. And when the wind and the rain hits the house built on sand, it's not going to be good. It's going to fall with a great collapse. And what I wanted to do this morning to kind of contrast the way that we're going about this as a church, as access, versus what some of us have experienced in the past, some of the ways in which we have operated in the past, is kind of point to us, point out to us the contrast between what it's like to build on rock versus sand. So here, let me forward the slides a bit. Um, this is the vision. It's Acts 1.8. And the first house that we might consider building or people have built over the years is The house that's actually built on moral religion. Moral religion. And moral religion says this. Follow the rules and God will approve of who you are and what you do and 
and how things go. Follow the rules, and this will go well for you. Follow the rules, and Santa is going to give you a big gift at the end of the year. You know, you'll be on the nice list. Follow the rules. And this is really how many people think about what religion is. If you bottom line it for people, what is religion all about? It's about following the rules. You know, when I first became a Christian, I was part of a church in Los Angeles, and um, lots of great people were there at that church, and I, I grew from a lot of the, the leaders there. But at the same time, it had its problems. It had its issues. And uh, one of the things I, I often illustrate or tell people about life in that early church, what it was like, was um, one weekend, the young adults wanted to have a square dance, which most people here in Texas are familiar with, right? Because um, we do it all the time, right? We have hoedowns. Um, well, in California, they wanted to do this kind of like Southern thing, I guess, and have a square dance. Um, but they couldn't call it a dance, so they called it a square event because dances were not allowed in the church. Um, now, later on, this is really a, a kind of a good thing. Um, I became, you know, after I graduated from college, I was uh, headed towards seminary. I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And I was invited by the church to be an intern there. And I, I said yes. Now, despite the problems of that church, I was like, you know, I know a lot of good people there. I, I enjoy the, uh, some of the leaders. And there's a lot I could learn. Um, but it didn't come without its, its problems. It was an immigrant church that had a lot of immigrant mentality and a lot of rules and we came face-to-face with those rules in different ways. So as an intern, uh, I remember one of the first times, it was the first time I was invited up to the church stage. And I didn't have the right clothes for it, so I went out shopping. <laughs> I bought a pair of pants. Uh, I bought some Dockers uh, back in the day. Dockers were like the thing. It was like, you know, you want to look nicer than jeans, which I wore all the time. Um, so I bought a pair of Dockers, and I did my first announcement prayer thing at church, and I thought it went pretty well, I mean, in my book. Uh, later on that week, a policy came out, policy for church interns. It was a dress code. Uh, interns need to wear wool slacks. So apparently my doctors didn't cut it, and I was a little disappointed. I, I failed at my first intern thing on stage. Um, I was like, okay, so I had to go out and buy some wool slacks. Um, and then there was a time that um, there was both spoken rules and unspoken rules, and Amy and I found this out together. It was, like I said, an immigrant uh, church, and sometimes the Chinese side of the congregation had their leadership things, and the expectation was that all leaders go to that, no matter what language you speak. And so I was like, are you sure? I mean, I guess spent a whole Sunday afternoon there. I don't even speak, I don't even understand what they're saying. Um, so it was like, yes, not only do you have to go, but your fiance, Amy, has to go. So that was just kind of like the unspoken rules. Now, I say some of these stories in a friendly manner. I don't, you know, I don't hate my old church or something like that. I don't want to color them that badly. Um, But it did have a record of producing kind of legalistic people, you know, people who, you know, look at your pants and and point things out. Um, And so that was kind of what I mean by moral religion. Now, here's the thing. Moral religion is not necessarily a church. It's a mindset. It's a way of going about life. It's a way of thinking. 
And it happens both inside church life and outside church life. Because sometimes people think that's what church is all about. It's about the rules. And if you do want good rules, and you know what? Good rules make you feel safe. They make you feel good. They let you know if you're in or out. But the problem is, if you fail at the rule, what happens? The unfortunate thing about some of those environments is that they don't know what to do with that. There's another household that's also built on sandy ground. It's what I call mission religion. Mission religion. This is not to be confused with the missional church, which is part of our vision. Um, Mission religion is another mindset. It's a way of kind of going about life. And the basic message behind mission religion is this. Do enough for God, then you will be worthy. Do something amazing for God, and you will be praised. You'll be a rock star in the Christian world. Do enough for God and everybody will be impressed. And in mission religion, being impressive and being, um, being big is really important. Now, I kind of have a lot of personal history with mission religion. It has influenced me quite a bit. And I don't think I necessarily had the awareness to realize that this was also sandy ground because it can feel very much like this is good. This is for God and everything. And it wasn't until I read some more stories about people struggling with mission religion that it really dawned on me that this was also sandy ground. There's a guy in uh, New York. His name was uh, Pete Scazzaro. He leads a church, did a church plant in New York. Very difficult to do a church plant in New York because not everyone uh, looks favorably at religion. But he was able to plant a church. It was flourishing. It was large. um, He was good at what he did. Now, he grew up in an immigrant family, and one of the messages that he heard along the way was always work hard. Work hard, that's the, that's the immigrant mentality. And so he took that into his faith journey with God, and he worked hard at church planting and then being a church pastor, and it grew and it grew, and then he was able to even hire a Spanish-speaking pastor and have a Spanish-speaking congregation that grew and grew and grew. Uh, he became good friends with that pastor, And that was the story on the outside. But as he writes in some of his books, on the inside, he was becoming a hollow shell. He was feeling empty and depleted, always doing this, always doing that, not having enough energy to get to the next thing. And then two things happened in in life that brought the house down, so to speak. Uh, One was this underground kind of conversation that was happening with the Spanish-speaking congregation. Um, Like I said, he was friends with the pastor, and the rumor was that the pastor wanted to go start his own ministry and do something else. And so they had a conversation, and he asked him, is this true? Do you want to leave and go somewhere else? And he said, no, no, not at all. But lo and behold, one Sunday, about 200 people were missing from the church that day because the because that other pastor had left to go start a new church without saying a word, took 200 people, and the ongoing message that they left behind was this. Leave Saul and follow David. Okay, so those of you who know your Old Testament know that it's like Saul kind of lost favor with God because he wasn't obedient to God and didn't follow God, started kind of drifting, and David was a new appointed leader. So it's like, leave the old guy Go follow where God is actually leading. Really hurtful message. And then 
A few months later, he came home to a message from his wife, which was really difficult too. And his wife said, I quit. I don't want to be part of your church anymore. I don't respect your leadership. I don't want to be part of what you're doing. And then they had an argument, and I went back and forth. And as they went back and forth, and he tried to get her to stay in the church, she said, I can't do this anymore. And maybe if we get separated, then maybe you'll listen. Maybe you'll take the kids on the weekend. Maybe you'll listen to me. And that hurtful message really, really changed the way that he began to pastor. And he wrote a book called Emotional uh, Healthy Church, The Emotionally Healthy Church, uh, in which he takes a, a much more inward journey to assess some of the things that he was lacking and not really connecting with in his life with God. And when I read that, this is important to me, I realized that there were many things that were like, now Amy has never had a conversation, thank God, like that with me. You know, she's never wanted to quit access, but I knew that I was headed in many ways into that kind of a life because I was working my butt off. And for what? Because I believed in this. If I work hard for God, he's going to like me. If I work enough for God, if I do enough for God, I'm worthy I'm worthy of attention. I'm worthy of God's grace. I'm worthy of of what God wants to do in this world. And this feels very much like faith, but it is sandy ground. So now, why am I sharing these with you? This is a pretty long introduction for me. um, Because these things stand in contrast to the message that we're going to look at today in Acts 4. In Acts 4, there's two things that we're going to look at in particular that God wants us to know about building a foundation, building a house, building a church that unites diverse people. It is to be founded and grounded in these things, not in what I just talked about. So let's get into the scripture today. Um, Oh. Here we are. Here's a great summary. (laughs) The early chapters of Acts reveal God's foundation for his church. This is why it stood against the wind and rain. Building on false foundations is painful, yes, and costly. So we need to pay attention. This is a picture of some monasteries in Greece. I saw this online. I was like, I got to use that. (laughs) It looks amazing. But that's a house built on solid rock. Okay. So let's get into Acts chapter 4. Now, if you missed the message last weekend, um, John was talking about Acts chapter 3 and how there's this lame uh, man who is lying in front of the, the temple gates. He'd been lying there for a long, long time. And as they went by, they healed him in the name of Jesus. And then he went into the temple singing and praising God, dancing, jumping up and down. And so um, all of this caused a huge commotion And this is the next chapter. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers and elders of the people. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this in all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus but since they could see that the man had been healed standing, uh, standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. All right, last section. Then they called them in again, commanded them to speak, not to speak, or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? God, right? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. All right. I'm not sure what to make of that last verse. I did highlight it. It stood out to me for some reason. I am in my 40s. And one thing that is true about my 40s that I've discovered is that I have had to do more physical health stuff than in any previous decade. I've had more health problems in my 40s than anything at all. I found out about back pains and back problems. Uh, I've learned about health conditions. I've had to stop eating certain things. I can't drink certain things. Um, And now I am starting to lose my ability to read certain things that are up close. I go to the eye doctor in a couple weeks, and I'm, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, bifocals may be in the future. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Nobody gets better by accident in their 40s. You don't just, like, start to get healthier and better and stronger and start walking by your own. And so everyone is amazed because they see this guy, and he's in his 40s. He's walking, he's jumping, and he's praising God, and everyone is beginning to praise God, too. And over 5,000 people begin to follow Jesus in this movement because of the miracles, because of the preaching, because this is happening. The Holy Spirit is on the move. Now, there's a a really interesting thing I want to point out here before we get to the main point. Uh, This is just setting up some context. What's happening here in this whole scenario. See, Peter and John went by the Holy Spirit and they healed somebody. 
And the leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were mad. They were, this is the crazy thing, they were filled with unbelief. Now, they saw the signs, they heard the message, but that didn't matter to them at all. Okay, we can't deny it. Okay, it happened, fine. But the problem is they're still preaching, and that's not good. Here we have the unbelief dilemma, the problem of no faith. And the faith isn't there. It, it's not lacking because there's not enough evidence or enough things to show for it. It's because they don't want to believe. Bottom line, they just don't want to believe. Because in believing, they might have to admit they're wrong. They might have to admit they killed the wrong guy. They might have to admit that their power is based on something other than God. And that is frightening. There's so much at stake for these leaders to admit that they're wrong. And they don't want to believe. There is a crippled man that was just healed. He's over 40 years old. There's a testimony of this growing movement of our 5,000 people that believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I say these things because sometimes in my conversations with people about faith and coming to faith and growing in faith that, you know, if God would only just show me, if you just show me a miracle, I'd, I'd certainly believe. The testimony of Scripture is a little different because sometimes people get enough miracles and evidence and reasons to believe, and it's not that. They just don't want to believe. And I think it's really important for us all, wherever we are in faith, to have these honest conversations about where we are. If God is whispering to you something and telling you something and asking you of, asking hard questions of you or leading you forward, I think it's time to pay attention. And we have to have honest conversations with God. Now, getting to the main point of where access Acts is going with this whole church of church uniting diverse people. This is the thing I want us to pay attention to. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's the explanation. These incredible lives were led because they had been with Jesus. That's what it resulted in the life, the courage, the way they were able to speak to authority and not be afraid. It's because they had been with Jesus. And here we get back to some of the intro I gave today. There are a couple sandy versions of Acts chapter 4, um, and one that sometimes plays in my mind is when I read this, it's the message of, you should do this. You should be bold. Ted, your pastor, you need to be bold to speak your mind and say, say what you need to say. Be courageous for Jesus. And then there's the kind of mission version. God needs you to be extraordinary also. Look at these guys. They were so extraordinary. And this, this means you should be extraordinary too. But I find that what Acts is trying to say to us is nothing other than this. They had simply been with Jesus. 
This was the new life that Jesus had promised throughout the Gospels. This is the new life they were supposed to live. And they were just responding to the moment because they had been with Jesus. I'm trying to say this in a slightly different way. I found this quote this week in an email. I liked it, so I just pasted it in the message. It's from a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux, a monk who lived in the Middle Ages, around the 1000s. If then you are wise, you will show yourself rather as a reservoir than a canal. A canal spreads about water as it receives it, and a reservoir waits until it is filled with overflowing, and thus, without loss to itself, communicates its superabundant water. In the church at the present day, we have many canals, but few reservoirs. <laughs> this is deep. And he said this a thousand years ago. <laughs> and we still struggle with this. We have created a church culture that's far too enamored, I think, with effectiveness, with success, without valuing, first of all, a deep life with God. And if it's not there first, if you don't have a deep life with God, you're just going to keep running and running and running and thinking that you're being, you're being incredible, you're being extraordinary. When what I think first of all needs to happen is this deep life with God. Now, we're very intentional about how we phrase things here. Access is a church that seeks to live life with God in soul, community, and mission. That with God preposition is different from living life for God, right? Which we're trying to impress God and do things for God. Now, there are times we do things for God, yes. But there are much more times the scripture emphasizes that a life with God is what the gospel invites us into. Okay, so quickly, I think these are the questions that come to us. What might a deep life with God look like for you? How might it be different than the life you lead today? I think it's important to spend some time thinking about what a deep life might look like with God. For Peter and John, this deep life resulted in courageous proclamation of the gospel. But let's be clear. It wasn't 5,000 different people getting up on a Sunday morning and giving messages to you. They weren't all trying to live Peter and John's life. They were leading their own lives. Some as carpenters. Some as traders. Oh, that sounds funny. Uh, some as, you know, market traders. Um, um, some people as moms and dads, some as kids, some as students, they were living their lives and following after Jesus. What does it look like for you to live a life that's deep and with God, that is more like a reservoir than it is a canal? Now, we're going to see in just a second, this is, it looked like a particular thing for the first church. Um, let's get on to the second half of the reading today. Acts chapter 4, this is a little shorter than the first section. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So this is the whole church coming together, and they're praying. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit. 
through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with um, Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. just want to pause here for a second. A deep life with God for the early church meant this type of prayer. And prayer, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because we just had a series on prayer uh, this summer. But I do want to say this. Prayer is essential to a, a deep life with God. And it's actually how they did it. And this deep life with God wasn't necessarily a formal thing. They just brought it all to God. They brought scripture. They brought their circumstances. They brought their, their threats and their fears. And they prayed for change for themselves. They prayed for change in the world. All of it. They just brought it all to God in prayer. And that should be encouragement. And then here's a lesson that we need to pay attention to. All the believers were One. In heart and mind. No one claimed that they were, uh, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money for the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the money, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This is that key phrase we need to pay attention to. It was God's grace that was so powerfully at work in them all. The power of God's grace. This is what led them to share possessions. This is what led them to this beautiful expression of generosity, abundant generosity. Now, I know that grace is a kind of a common word in church world, um, and if you're not familiar with it, here are some definitions that sometimes we use, and they're they're kind of um, they're kind of good. Um, one is unmerited favor. That means it's favor that you didn't expect, you didn't earn, and you didn't get because you were good enough. Um, God just gives it to you. It is specifically the forgiveness of sins. We talk about grace in that manner, and you are forgiven for things that you've done wrong, and that is grace. But over the years, I've learned that even though I've lived with that definition for a long time, it is actually incomplete in some ways. It's not the full picture. Because when you go back to the passage in Acts 4, does it mean that because they were forgiven daily that they became so generous? Because they were forgiven and forgiven and forgiven that they go, man, I just need to to sell my field and give it to the apostles. No. Um, And what is happening is... um, 
This definition of grace, while very important, especially for those of us who've lived with moral religion a lot, is incomplete. And this is a great definition that I... uh, um, Oops. Grace is what you need if you cross the line in moral religion, and grace is what you need if you fail in mission religion. But these definitions don't work with Acts 4. Here's a definition I think is really, really good for us. Grace is not just about forgiveness, says Dallas Willard. If we have never sinned, we would still need grace, because grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is what we live by, and it's what the human system won't work without, won't work without it. The saint uses grace like a 747 jet burns gas on takeoff. I don't connect so well with that last <laughs> one, but I, I know what Dallas Willard is trying to say. I remember him saying this in a workshop, and I was like, hmm, I don't that's really interesting. I don't, I don't think I know that aspect of grace. And what he's saying is this. God graciously wants to fuel your life. He wants to infuse you with power, with love, with self-discipline, with patience, with gentleness, with respect, with all these qualities And they are from God. They are a gift. Grace isn't just what you need when you screw up or when your friends screw up or when things fail around you. Grace is what you live by every single day. It is a connection with God that fuels your very life. And the part that I remember Dallas Willard saying this, as you grow... In maturity as a Christian, the more grace you need, not the less. I think this is in sharp contrast to what moral religion and mission religion say. They say you need grace to get in the front door, and then it's all your own effort to keep going on your own. And if you need a little grace along the way, yeah, we'll hand it out to you. That's good. The picture in the New Testament and the picture that we're seeing here in Acts 4 is this. Our lives are meant to be lived with God. They're meant to be fueled by God's grace every step of the way. The house built on rock is a house is a house built on the grace of God. It is a life constantly empowered by God in all things so that we can be and we can do more than we could by our own effort. So, I want to end today thinking practically about grace. How do we get centered on grace? And how do you center your life on grace? I find that questions really kind of shape your life. Living with certain questions shapes your life in a certain way. Uh, and they build the foundation in a, in a good way. Um, and we need to have the right questions around grace. So uh, years ago when I was serving in a on staff at another church. Uh, I remember a particularly discouraging time that our staff team had. And during this kind of season, um, I remember showing up at staff meetings and feeling discouraged every week. I was like, man, it's just so, so discouraging around here. And I said, maybe we should start by like giving thanks or something. You know, we just 
<laughs> change the conversation a little bit. And out of frustration, another staff member said, there's nothing to give thanks for. You know, it's just a, a real message uh, or saying in frustration. I don't think he meant it in that way, but he said what all of us were pretty much thinking, right? But what I've learned over the years is it's, it's really not that God wasn't there in those moments. It's just we weren't seeing them. We had our eyes trained on problems. And so every week we'd show up, here's the problem I saw this weekend, here's the problem I saw this weekend, and at the end of the meeting, you feel the weight of all that. And we began to shift the conversation. We began to ask a new question. And this is actually the question that we have here at Access Staff. And it comes from that early conversation days long ago when I was on staff. And I kind of really see it as an important thing for how we operate here. What are some ways you see God at work? Now, when we do this here on Access Staff, sometimes I don't, I don't see much, to be honest. But I read what other staff members are, reading, are saying, and it's encouraging to me. I was like, you saw that? That's great. I'm glad, I'm glad somebody caught that because that encourages me. And some weeks I notice things that other people don't notice, and I, I hope it encourages them too, right? So it's one of those things that you do in community. When you keep this question central in front of your friendships, in front of your family, in front of the people that you do life with, you begin to recognize and see, yeah, God is at work. God is doing something. He is always doing something. His grace is there. It may be quieter than you're used to or maybe louder than you're used to. Something else that kind of plays into it is that whole introversion, extroversion kind of thing. Some of us tend to notice God's grace out there much more readily. And so we call it out. Look what God's doing over there. And it's really good. And some of us are more internally kind of wired. And so you know, this is what God's been doing in me these days, and I haven't told a soul, but this is, this is really good, you know? And when I share that and other people get to hear, it's good. It's celebrating what needs to be celebrated. And so some of you need a new question in life, and this is a good one to start with. What are some ways you see God at work in your world, in your life, in your soul, in your community, in your friendships, in your family, in your neighborhood. What is God doing in the world today? And despite what the news and the media wants to feed us today, there is good news out there. God is on the move. So here are our questions that we can end with today. And take a picture of these for your small group and whatever else because we can't get through all of them today. I'm not even going to try reading them all today. So um, I just listed them out there. Um, and I'd like us to end today in conversation. So turn to the people around you and next to you and pick one question that you can share. And maybe just with three or four people, just pick one that kind of stands out to you. And then spend this next week in conversation about these questions. And hopefully this will stir some good and important dialogue here. All right. Uh, let's take the next few minutes to do this. If you're new here and you're not used to getting conversations on a Sunday morning, just say, hey, I'm new. I'd rather just listen. That's totally fine. But for the rest of us, let's, let's dive right in.